DBE Unfiltered, DBE Diverse Business Elite Magazine's premier podcast. We bring you the voices of today's renowned societal leaders and community stakeholders who contribute to making a difference talking about what they do, how they got there, and what they're thinking about in this sometimes controversial world of diversity, inclusion, and race relations. In this episode, I don't always felt that way. First people ignore you. Then they'll criticize you. Then they try to copy you. Then you win. It feels like today we're winning. We talked to John Hope Bryant, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Operation Hope, who shares his passion behind his pursuit of financial literacy for all. I am so happy that you're taking the time to speak with us. I'm going to jump right into the questions. So we always like to find out a little bit of the, about the early years. So a little bit about your, your upbringing, your childhood, and maybe some early life things that formed the person that you, you became as an adult. Well, my mother and father were business people, and um, they got that uh, from influences directly in their, their lives. My mother, my mother's brother was one of the most successful business people in, in St. Louis. Um, my father's, uh, my father was a small businessman and his father, R.B. Smith, was born in 1871 in Mississippi and likely born into slavery, was also a sharecropper. And, um, so he owned a farm worth $700 in 19, by 1921. That, that asset base, as small as it was, um, and built on that and became, as I said, a small businessman. And I became an entrepreneur. My mom's, my mom's mother, uh, owned a shotgun shack, um, in East St. Louis. So they grew up in a shotgun shack in their early lives, which meant that you could, <clears throat> in old southern terms, you could shoot a shotgun down the front of the, through the house, from the front of the house to the back and not hit anything, any walls or anybody a very basic structure. And right. my mother owned, uh, my grandmother owned one home. My mother owned seven homes, bought and sold, and I own 700 today. Uh, so all this is role modeling. My mom and dad moved to um, South Central Los Angeles and <clears throat> married. Unfortunately, um, they're not able to resolve their differences and didn't realize that in a relationship, two plus two has equal more than four. In a relationship, two plus two should equal six or eight or ten. Otherwise, why are you doing it? And you got to learn to communicate and prioritize. And my brother uh, was going to be sent to college. He was much older than me. <clears throat> my father got to the bank before my mother did and wasted the money set aside for my brother's college education. So that created a domestic uh, abuse situation in the house, and they fought 
my mom and my dad fought. And I ended up having to call the police on my father in the midst of that fight. And that was a memory I had embedded in my brain as my mom then moved out of the house. Unfortunately, um, they're not able to resolve their differences and didn't realize that in a relationship, two plus two has equal more than four. In a relationship, two plus two should equal six or eight or ten. Otherwise, why are you doing it? And you got to learn to communicate and prioritize. And my brother uh, was going to be sent to college. He was much older than me. <clears throat> my father got to the bank before my mother did and wasted the money set aside for my brother's college education. So that created a domestic uh, abuse situation in the house, and they fought. My mom and my dad fought. And I ended up having to call the police on my father in the midst of that fight. And that was a memory I had embedded in my brain as my mom then moved out of the house. <clears throat> my mother went to go live with a girlfriend of hers. Um, and it's at that place that my mother decided she was going to become a homeowner. And she did what a lot of my Hispanic friends to this day do, which is to live with other loved ones in order to save enough money to buy your own. My mother was able to move out of that house and buy our first home at 15502 South Fraley Avenue in Common, California. Um, and we moved into our first home that, of our own, and I was very proud of my mother. I made some quick friends in the neighborhood. The biggest friend amongst those, like the friend that was a guy named George, who was very smart in grades. And uh, was more, he was older than me and much more elevated in his understanding, and I really admired him. Unfortunately, he started hanging around with the next-door neighbor of mine who was a drug dealer, and he got shot and killed with my next-door neighbor. Once again, about money right. and hustling in the wrong way. And so by the time I was nine years old, I'd sort of had enough. I just was looking for a new way, a new business plan for my community. And that's when a banker came in uh, to my classroom uh, talking about financial literacy. I had no idea what he was talking about or what he was doing or why he was there. I didn't realize there was a law back then called the Community Reinvestment Act that required banks to come into underserved neighborhoods, invest in them, teaching financial literacy being one of the things uh, that they were supposed to do. And all I knew is this white guy was in my classroom. We didn't want him there. He didn't want to be there. By the second session, we had calmed down. He had calmed down. We decided he wasn't a bad guy. He decided we weren't bad kids. And we're like, you know, maybe not so bad. And he says, well, you know, you kids sort of remind me of my children. And we start, stopped judging each other and started to befriend each other. And in the midst of all that, we started listening to what he had to say about money. And I found it fascinating because it seemed to fly in the face of anything I was taught growing up or was not taught, shall I say. And mm -hmm. um, then he said something that changed my life. He, he, he used the word, well, I asked the question, um, what do you do for a living? And how would you get rich legally? And it's joking. It sounds funny today. It sounds cute when I say it today, but I was really very serious. This guy was like a Martian. I mean, I've seen people murdered 
in my neighborhood over money. And she said, and he said, young man, I'm a banker and I finance entrepreneurs. And I said in response to her, I don't know what an entrepreneur is. I've never heard that phrase, that word, my entire life. And I'm at this point nine, going on ten. But whatever it is, if it's legal and you're financing them, then I'm going to be one. And if there are a bunch of guys like you running around this country doing what you just told me, then I've got a plan to get my whole neighborhood out of poverty and murder and mayhem and problems. And in some ways, Operation Hope started back then when I was 10 years old. I just didn't know it because that's really what Operation Hope is doing at scale today. But going back to that moment, that then triggered me looking at my whole neighborhood differently, looking at the muffler shop as a business, looking at the nail salon as a business. goes on, goes on, goes on. Finally, I saw the, the corner liquor store, so candy. Well. That's a business. And then I went and told the guy I was selling the wrong kind of candy. And he said, go away, little boy. I've got a college degree. I know what I'm doing. And I said, that's nice. I've got a cap. And he said, I don't think you do. You're not listening to me because you're selling the wrong kind of candy. So make a long story short, I competed with him. It, it, there's more to it than that. But um, I competed with him by opening my own candy house. I went to go work for him for a short period of time um, to learn wholesale retail and profit margins and <clears throat> where he got his inventory from. And once I figured all that out, I quit and competed with him and ran out of my business. Mm-hmm. And the next 10 years was a series of businesses um, that mostly failed. But I I would never give up. Once I once I'd gotten that memo in my life, I was off and running, and nothing was going to stop me, nothing or no one. I was homeless once. I had taken one too many risks by the time I got to – 18 years of age, I run out of other people's money. I ran out of my money and other people's money, and so I ended up living in my Jeep for six months. But we sorted all that out, and uh, there's no no turning back. So I'm really resilient today as a result. It's really hard to stop me. I'm just curious. There were other people in your class who heard this man speak as well. Did Did you find that anyone was impacted as much as you were by it? I'd, I'd like most entrepreneurs and most go-getters, I could care less about anybody else where they got the memo. I was right. the fact that I got it. Um, but it is, it is a good question, um, and no one's ever asked me, by the way, um, mm-hmm. that question. They've heard this story before. To the best of my yeah. knowledge, no, no one mm-hmm. – I mean, the, my Hispanic friends, mm-hmm. uh, I don't make this about race, but my Hispanic friends who, who had – business role models and home ownership role models of their family, um, I think they got it. Um, mm-hmm. But the folks in my neighborhood who were struggling and hustling and had, did not have a lot of family structure and all that stuff, I don't know if they got it. Um, there's no, I don't have any evidence that anybody did anything with that information one way or another other than me. But one thing I know is without, without that information, um, I don't know where I'd be. And if there's a Steve Jobs, if there's a Steve Jobs in every community in America, uh, then all you really need is one person to get it in every community in America. You need one person who can become a job creator. Because not everybody's meant to be an entrepreneur. Most people cash checks, they don't write them. Um, mm-hmm. You just need, we need a mechanism where we find the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, the 
the, the, whoever your men, whoever your hero or shero happens to be, uh, insert their name. We need a system that nurtures that group of people and brings them to the, into the light in every community in America. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and as you mentioned that, that sort of leads to my, my next question, is, and, and this is very insightful to understand where you're coming from as far as financial literacy and how far back it goes. And I'm just wondering what you see these days as lacking in financial literacy, especially, <clears throat> excuse me, as it comes, as it deals with underserved communities. Like an underserved community that you were in years ago, have, have things improved as far as teaching financial literacy in those kind of communities, or, or do we still have a long way to go? Uh, I can see family structure. I could, I could see somebody wearing a suit. Um, we had, a, we had home economics class. Um, there were mechanisms by which uh, it, it was more emphasized back then. There was, there were basic structures in place that would allow, if you were interested, you could, you could find a way to access the information. But in underserved communities now, I mean, we've taken PE out of the school, uh, which is um, uh, where kids get their sort of run all their aggression and, and energy out. We've taken arts and and, and auto shop and all those things are gone. So, mm-hmm. uh, in some ways, it's gotten worse. Um, we at Operation Hope and a few other organizations, Junior Chi and others, are trying to bridge the gap. But really, it's going to take. Uh, we have 200 officers now in 46 states, but most of those deal with adults. Um, really, adults my age who didn't get the memo when, I, when they were a kid, so they they're not winning or thriving. They're they're surviving. Mm-hmm. And and half of African Americans today have a credit score below 620, which sort of answers your question of are people getting the memo? You have half, you can't get a decent mortgage below 620. You can't get a decent car loan below six between below 620. Uh, well, below 600, you can't get a decent car loan at all. Um, it's a nosebleed loan with regard to the payments, uh, or they say it's not a Mercedes Benz, it's a Mercedes payments. Uh, you can't get a a small business loan and their 700 credit score because it's, because it's considered risky credit. So what's needed now at the, at the youth level where I was experiencing this is, is legislation. And I'm working with groups to, to correct what we call the ground, the groundwater effects of misinformation. Um, and this goes back to slavery, exactly slavery, exactly the Civil War. The Freedmen's Bank that was created to teach research about money by Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Lincoln was assassinated. The bank was closed. One could argue that if that had been done after the Civil War, if that plan had been carried out, one could argue that African Americans just might have what one might refer to as the maybe the Jewish American economic experience of you were discriminated against, you were held back, people didn't like you for this reason or that silly reason. But you were able to take control of your own economic life because you knew the, the basics of how the economy worked. So mm-hmm. that didn't happen for African Americans, and, and and as a result of that, other than through arts or through politics or through professional sports, you really are not seeing African Americans succeed um, at scale, and certainly not in business. 
So mm-hmm. um, this is a way, whether you're poor white, by the way, there are more poor whites than poor anybody else in this country, or whether you're Native American Indian or whether you're African American, these are the three groups that have sort of been left behind by economic prosperity in America. As a, uh, I'm not talking about exceptions to the rule, I'm talking about the groups overall. Um, they need Congress to codify this as a financial literacy civil rights issue and, and investments in the schools paid through college, and, and I'm working on that uh, with some legislative leaders in Washington, D.C. Um, and then you need groups like ours banding together to do what we're doing at Opera's Hope, which is to provide adult coaching for people who are already in the midst of their lives to do some course correction. You, you talked about working with um, with with politicians in Washington D.C. and you seem to straddle um, both political sides. Um, do you feel that that is the solution to creating change um, when it comes to things like bringing financial literacy into underserved communities? Is it working with both parties and trying to coming up with something bipartisan? Yes, I think it has to be bipartisan. We can't be partisan. This is poverty is not a partisan issue. Prosperity is not a partisan issue. Um, and we've got too many things in this country that are ripping us apart and separating us. <clears throat> Financial literacy, luckily, is not one of those things you have to argue about. It's, it's something that everybody, no matter how irrational their thought process might be, understands. I mean, you can't even run you can't even run the Ku Klux Klan without a business plan. You got to sell T-shirts and mugs or something uh, with races writing on it to, to collect enough money to keep your stupid meetings going. So everybody, whether you're a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a hate group, uh, whoever you are, wherever you are, you need a business plan, which means you have to understand how this system works. So fortunately or unfortunately, it resonates with everybody, irrespective of whether they're moral or not, and. I think that it could be a bridge builder. In addition to being just sort of critically important for the nation, it could also just be a way to build bridges of understanding between different people who at the moment are committed to not understanding each other. And and there are groups like No Labels out of Washington, D.C., who are taking prominent steps to uh, – important steps to uh, towards getting this le- le- done legislatively. You talked a little bit about why the, the reason for um, starting Operation Hope, but give me a little bit more background on on why, because there are, as you said, other organizations that maybe deal with financial literacy, but what did Operation Hope bring to the table that you felt wasn't there yet? Plus years ago, there was a group called, there, uh, founded called uh, uh, Junior Achievement. And Junior Achievement was created uh, by agrarian farmers, uh, to teach their children about farming and teach their, children, sorry, teach their children about how to run a business called the farm because their schools weren't teaching that. And the reason that we have summers off today is because the schools would let kids off for the summer to go help their parents with the annual harvesting um, preparation work. Um, and <clears throat> we uh, did not have a system that taught people business back then, so Junior Achievement created an environment 
that taught their children how to run a business. Well, their children, this is coming off of the back end of slavery and Jim Crow and um, rental farms, which is mm-hmm. sharecropping, their children were mostly white and privileged and rural. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. But mm-hmm. that wasn't going to help the 100 million urban population or poor, poor white or, or or other populations who were struggling who didn't own a farm, whose parents didn't own a farm. And um, and also the economy had changed. The uh, now income, 130 years ago, income was made in the hinterland. Now all the GDP was made in cities. So how do you run a modern, how do you participate in a modern economy? Mm-hmm. No one's teaching you that. So, and then also if you're part of this underprivileged group, it's entirely possible that you're more than a little, to be blunt, pissed off uh, at the world because the world's uh, walked past you. And if that's the case, uh, maybe your hope meter has sort of gone out. Maybe you don't believe anymore. Maybe you don't trust banks. Maybe you are not convinced that this system is designed to help you. And so your hope is gone. And um, I can't promise you that being positive is going to make you a success, but I can absolutely promise you that being negative is going to make you a failure. Mm -hmm. So we have to speak to the emotions also um, of this population. We had to do the thing that the agrarian farmers did not have to do when they were teaching junior achievement. We had to help you get your hope back. So that's why Operation Hope is a little inspirational, a little aspirational, a little tactical, a little fundamental, building blocks, all that kind of stuff at the basics, but also encouraging you to reach the highest heights at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's just different. It was, yeah. it was an organization built 30 years ago for to solve a new set of problems. Um, and what would you say over those 30 years – are you personally most proud of uh, as far as outcomes from Operation Hope? Moving credit scores of 54 points in six months, 120 points in 24 months. That changed your life. Taking somebody mm-hmm. making $50,000 a year, reducing their debt by $2,600, increasing their savings by $1,000, changes their life. Um, making people bankable, getting a bank out of the no business and back into the yes business. We just uh, opened our 200th location with the CEO of Wells Fargo here in inner city at DeKalb County. That's a long way from South Central LA in a dream. And to have the second or third biggest bank in America to um, adopt our, our methodology and to put it in what will be over 100 bank branches at some point here by next year, it proves that we were onto something. And they believe it will help make clients bankable. We believe it, too. Um, so the adoption of our – so the results, number one, in the adoption of our results by major corporations for their employees, companies like UPS and Delta Airlines and companies owned by KKR, 
to 30 to 40 banks in this country who are highly regulated um, and are have to and have never let a nonprofit inside of their bank branch to operate in their history before us. Those are some of the things that are top of mind that I say mm-hmm. we're most proud of. Four million clients, four billion dollars of capital dispatched into these neighborhoods. That, you know, all that, and then and the other things I mentioned to you, and then having, you know, renamed the Treasury Annex Building, the Freedmen's Bank Building, in honor of those former slaves with every dollar they had in that bank. So we've had some public policy wins. We got President Bush to make financial literacy the federal policy of the federal government. Now we have to get the Congress to do the same for the people. We have some public policy wins. We have some community wins. We have some client wins. We have some partner wins. We have some scaled wins. Oh, wonderful. And what, do you, what would you say is on the horizon for Operation Hope? To become the Starbucks of financial inclusion, a thousand locations, where you work, where you shop, where you make decisions, where you get educated, down the street from where you live, the private banker, America's financial coach, and the private banker for the working class, the struggling class, and too much folks with too much month at the end of their money, which is most people. You talked about your your family inspiring you, and you talked about the man who came in and talked about financial literacy. Do you have any other people who have inspired you on your journey? Yes. I mean, Lonnie is probably smiling because she's like. She says, well, this interview is supposed to be over. You'll be talking to John for the next two hours. And that's for <laughs> those names. The ambassador, Andrew Young, uh, is our global spokesman. He was on that balcony when Dr. King was assassinated in 68. Um, he's helped us move our thinking from civil rights to silver rights, from thinking about a movement in the streets to a movement in the business suites. He helped me to understand that I can't emulate Dr. King. Um I'm not a pastor. I'm not a civil rights leader. I'm going to be really crappy at all that. Um, but but no different than I, that I can't go in the pulpit and do what Dr. King did. This is quoting Andrew Young. Dr. King, likewise, can't go into a corporate office for a CEO or go into a billionaire's home and and move that person to do the things that maybe I can move that person to do. We're just speaking different languages. Um, same goal, different languages. Reverend Susan Kid Murray um, from South Central LA, who protected me. Bishop Charles E. Blake, who protected me from some of the political and community leaders who looked like me mostly, who saw me as a threat or saw me as a distraction or saw me as taking fundraising dollars from their pockets um, when corporations were trying to figure out who to support. And so they did, it wasn't personal to me, they just wanted me out of the way. and so Reverend Murray protected me. Bishop Jake Blake protected me. Now Bishop T.D. Jakes is a new protector. Uh, Reverend Ambassador Young, I just mentioned. These are so there's a whole bunch of folks in the community. Uh, uh, Dr. Dorothy Height. A lot of civil rights leaders uh, who saw me as uh, what I was doing as special um, went out of their way to use their credibility to protect me from those who might see me as a threat. And then you've got the, a bunch of folks in the corporate world Bill Rogers of Truist and Jamie Dimon and Charlie Shaw from Wells Fargo and uh, these names these names are also endless. Tim Welsh of U.S. Bank and Rick Hartnack of Union Bank and all these heroes and sheroes. Ed Bashan of Delta, 
Doug McMillan, CEO of Walmart, these are all CEOs. Dan Schulman of, Be- of PayPal, uh, John Donahoe of, of Nike, the, the commissioner, uh, Roger Goodell of the NFL. These are all people who in different ways have been blocking and tackling and Tony Rush the billionaires, you know, investing money, mm-hmm. opening doors, bridging myself, bridging me, Michael Milken into different realities. The Secretary Jack Lew of Treasury. The name, the, the, the names are in this. A new constituency in a new movement that didn't exist before. Every one of the every member of that constituency is another layer of protection and support on the bridge to a new reality. So we're all bridge building, literally bridge building. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of important leaders from important institutions who said. Either I'll protect you or I'll help you. And that's important, right, because there can be this feeling sometimes that people are in it um, alone and people are against them, but you are yeah. – you will assume that there are a lot of people with you who want to do the same goal. I haven't always felt that way. First, people will ignore you. Then they'll criticize you. Then mm-hmm. they try to copy you. Then you win. It feels like today we're winning. Thanks for listening. And remember – You can talk about making a difference, you can take action to make a difference, or you can join DVE in doing both. Until next time, stay blessed and be inspired. DVE Magazine Where excellence and exceptionally